Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Happy holidays from all your friends at Podcast One. Hey, it's Adam Carolla. This is Heather Dubrow from Heather Dubrow's World. Hey, it's Steve Austin from Steve Austin Show. Hey, this is Rob Riggle. And Sarah Tiana from Riggle's Picks. This is Caitlin Bristow from Off the Vine. Hey, this is Kelty from The Lady Gang. Happy holidays from Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, my colleague at The Athletic and somebody I have known for a long time, one of the first guests on Real GM Radio. We start out talking about the Warriors, what's going on with the team, goes in some interesting directions, a lot of stuff that I haven't talked about on the show, but we've talked about in private, and I think it's a good time to discuss some of those long-term elements that are in play here. We also talk about his Strauss versus the House picks columns and the process and what he's learned from that and what he's watching for in the league. Really fun conversation brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus. And True Car, great place to buy new and used cars. This episode is longer than I thought it was going to be. We ended up talking for an hour and a half in two different parts, something I wouldn't usually bring up, but he references it. And because the overwhelming feedback was that if it saved me time to do lighter editing, that is exactly what is happening here. Again, your feedback is welcome. We'll talk about that after the show. So hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Of course, man. My pleasure. Let's do it. I figure that considering we're both based in the Bay Area, we should start with the Warriors, a team that is now generating significantly more interest around the league, kind of as a national story, because there are a few, a few appear to be cracks in the armor, at least a little bit. And that came to the fore, obviously, with the Draymond, Kevin Durant, Tiff in Los Angeles during that Clippers game. But there are there are genuine reasons to think that this team is more vulnerable than they have been before, even if those concerns might be a little bit overwrought. Well, the question I'm asking myself, and I'm not sure there's an answer to it, but I think it is the question. At what point is what we see in the regular season enough of a concern that we draw conclusions on what's going to happen in the postseason? At what point? You know, are we talking a 47 win pace? I remember last night when we were discussing this, Marcus was saying if they fell out of the playoff picture. Now, it's all very jumbled in the West, of course. They're not far from doing that. I, I, I don't know what that indicates necessarily. I, I, I put that to you. At what point, Danny, do you go, okay, they're not the favorite anymore? Is there nothing beyond injury that can happen to dissuade you of that? 
other than potentially following- but by the way th- th- this is what i like to do i like to go on people's podcasts and grill them as though it's my podcast but continue you were saying that, i mean you and i talked last night about how i treat the show as a conversation so i like that <laughs> you know that's okay. that's part of you we've done this going back to like the third episode of the show so it's not not a big problem so okay. I, I i think for me health is obviously the primary thing let's throw that to the side because then that's a, that's a whole different kettle of fish that we don't need to discuss because everybody kind of knows what that is so if we're talking purely on record i would say if it gets to the point where it looks like they might not make the playoffs like that that really is the line for me because they have they've only won one series where they didn't have home court that was the series against the rockets last year and they very well could have lost that series granted that houston team was also in my opinion either the best or second best team if we're talking full strength that they've faced during the Kerr era the other one being the 2016 oklahoma city thunder not the 2016 Cavs. there's a whole story behind that but so I think that the Warriors, especially in the West right now, nobody has really risen up. Like there are teams that are playing well, OKC certainly among them, Denver being among them. But to me, no one's really taken that brass ring of like, oh, okay, in a seven game series, this team's really going to cause them trouble. So as long as they're in the dance, I think if they're healthy, I would have the Warriors as the favorite in every playoff series and without home court. But we're starting to see signs. And and I think the place to start with this is really starting with the Utah game, how teams are now defending Draymond Green, the way that the Warriors defended Rajon Rondo in the second round last year, which is we don't care if he shoots. It's not necessarily like, oh, you you know, like, oh, let's just let him have the ball as much as he wants, just trying to kind of bait him into jump shots. And there are two components to that. One is he's been an awful jump shooter this year. And then the second component, which is, I think, the far more interesting one, is that the Warriors just don't have enough counters, whether that's Draymond driving or using screens in different ways, to really exploit that. They don't have those tools in their toolbox right now. Yeah, I I, I would agree. And I think what, what is concerning in the longer view... So they have this problem. They have this problem that Draymond, a guy who made six three-pointers in Game 7 of the NBA Finals, if memory serves, uh, is being left wide open and not hitting three-pointers. And Steve Kerr, after the last game, was saying that they are working on all these things and implementing different things to account for that, which I, I don't know. It was a little surprising. Everybody else just takes that as, oh, yeah, naturally you make adjustments, blah, blah, blah. You know, involve him as a screener more because – Steph Curry's man is still going to run up and uh, not not want to be left, you know, want not I mean not Steph Curry's man, but uh Draymond's guy is not he he wants to help on Steph. If Draymond is screening for Steph or screening for Durant, so involve him as a screener more, yada yada yada. That's what they did in the last game, but yet I'm looking at the situation and going there's but so much you can do to account for this. There's but so much you can do. There are only so many smoke and mirrors to cover up that you have this guy who's being left wide open. He has to hit the damn shot. He has to take the damn shot. He has to hit the damn shot. And I don't know if I, I, I don't know if I like that there is a, let's go to the lab, let's do a Manhattan project to try to account for Draymond not hitting open shots. He's got to hit the open shot. I, I, I hate to sound like a, a sports talk radio jock, but I really think it's that simple for the Warriors season and playoff series. It really is that simple. And a, a part of it is that Draymond, he's a capable passer in those four-on-three situations. For those who remember, going back to the 2015 oh, finals. Th- 
that that was their best offense with yeah. the Draymond Steph pick and roll where either he would pop and he could hit an open three pointer or he would roll and he would make great decisions in that four on three. But you were saying. But what the Blazers in particular were recording this on Friday afternoon after watching that ridiculous game on Thursday night. Part of what Portland is doing, and I've actually said that teams have made a mistake on this for years, and it's funny that it's actually sort of happening now, is that teams have treated Draymond as a scorer in those circumstances and not as a passer. And so, like, that first year, it was those lobs to Festus Azili and to various—actually, might not have been Festus that first finals. I'm trying to remember who it was. It was a bunch of—like, whoever the, the other guy was in that year. God, memory's already so bad. And the, those guys were open because the, the let's call it the center was going to was going to Draymond, and then he creating the open passing lane. You're basically you're forcing them to make a decision, and they were making the wrong decision because Draymond. I, I tweeted this out last night. For his career, he is a 27 percent shooter on floaters, and so basically my argument has been the mm. center, the center or the, the whoever that last guy is should be waiting back, and if Draymond wants to take the floater, by all means, and then if you have to contest like if he gets all the way to the basket then you, you just get a man in the way and Draymond is he's an intuitive passer but he's not that adept where you know if he's in the air he's gonna like swing the ball to his side and also you can recover yeah. in those circumstances like that's not the type of passes that he's a, bi- a bit of an overrated passer I would say uh, where I've heard people call him the best passer on the team no Steph is Steph is a better passer than Draymond and, and also, Draymond yeah. throws, and it's funny because Steph Curry does this too, he throws a lot of terrible passes. And that is another line. I mean, they don't always go off Clay Thompson's face, but mm. sometimes. <laughs> and, and, and I think that and Draymond, he has this propensity, which Curry does too, and, and to an extent Durant does, though Durant is a way worse passer than those other two, of throwing the ball into too tight a window when there isn't as much of a benefit. Yeah, like there are certain times like, oh, if you can throw it through a basketball-sized hole, but the guy who's getting it is going to get an open dunk. Yeah, sometimes that's a risk calculation you make. Or if it's like five seconds on the shot clock or something. Draymond does that a lot because he's like, oh, I can do it and just throws it in there and then somebody gets it and and like the guy would have batted contested, you know, contested two anyway. And so, I mean, his turnover percentage right now, I mean, granted, again, this is just like his shooting where you don't expect it to be this level at the end of the year. He's turning the ball over on 28% of his possessions. That is Ooh. incredibly Ooh. high. His career Ooh. high before this before this season was 22.5, which is also really high. But he's, you know, when you're assisting as much as he is, that's it's, not it, that big a deal. It, it's a bad thing when you're more likely to turn the ball over than make a wide-open three-point shot. That's That's probably not great. Right. And so Draymond right now, 22.6% of his three-pointers. His career average is 32. He was at 30% last year. And so generally speaking, that would mean that there's some progression. But this gets into something that I think is exceedingly important. Nate and I talk about this with various guys in the league. Justice Winslow is an obvious one, but there are numerous others where percentages are an easy thing to point to. But the more important element when you're thinking about a defense, especially in a seven-game series, is the shots they don't take. The times when yeah. you leave them open, and it's the, to- the term you coined as a record scratch, or anything else. Like, they stop, they hesitate, and they make another pass, or like all those other things, because the player is getting the benefit that they wanted. You know, the easy way to think about it is the missed three, but it could also be a stagnant possession or the player who's supposed to be on Draymond stops the other guy. There was this play I talked with, I talked with you about it last night where this is why you don't want to use Draymond as a screener, maybe as much on ball. Draymond set a screen for Durant. 
Draymond's guy and Durant's guy followed Durant and he just shot the contested two. It was a tough shot. Durant can make tough shots, mm-hmm. but he just missed it. And if you're basically giving them a two on one and what you're getting out of it is not as desirable as it used to be, it becomes a dicier proposition than it was before. I would agree with that. I especially agree with you giving me my uh, etymological credit on uh, on record scratch. Uh, you know, I, 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 I want that known. I like owning my, my, my little terms, my little niche terms. Uh, and yeah, there is this thing where you can involve them as a screener, but the screener has a better chance of getting re-involved in the play uh, <laughs> than a lot of other guys on the court in many circumstances. And again, I stress this, there are only so many things you can do to compensate for this particular problem. Eventually, offense happens. The ball swings around. And it creates an issue when the wide open guy either shouldn't be passed to or if he gets the rock uh, is not going to do something that productive with it, even if he's wide open. And it gets to another question, which is what is wrong? What's wrong? He's never been a great three-point shooter. We know this, but he used to be somebody who could make open three-point shots. Is it physical? I would tend to think it might be considering how often uh, he performed better against the Blazers, but how often he, he, he's been at the rim and just not able to get the ball over the lip of the rim at point blank range. It looks like he is, he is ailing. You know, he's had shoulder issues. He's had toe issues. So it might be that, uh, or it might be something more like, uh, I don't want to say the yips because that's too much, but for them to go into the lab and try to fix it with any method beyond just getting him to make open shots is, is bizarre to me and underrated for how bizarre it is. It also exacerbates another problem that the Warriors have had simmering below the surface for a couple of years, which is just a small number of guys in their team that can actually shoot. Now, yeah. people don't think about that much because they have the greatest shooter of all time, running point, and Kevin Durant is ridiculous. And up until this year, and that's something else we can talk about, Clay Thompson has been dynamite, one of, another one of the best shooters of all time. But outside of those guys, it's been pretty rough for a while now. And that's actually one of the most interesting questions about DeMarcus Cousins. I mean, DeMarcus Cousins might walk in and become the Warriors' fourth best shooter. I would say yeah. it's, it's a conversation with a few other guys that are lower in the rotation than Cousins will be. But mm-hmm. that's worth keeping an eye on. And so when you play Draymond, I had this, I had this stat, which I, I put out today, that when Draymond and... Sean Livingston play together without Curry because Curry changes a lot of these things. The Warriors have an offensive rating about 86. And Iguodala, mm-hmm. another reluctant shooter, though he's been looked a little bit better over the last couple of games. And all of these guys have similar problems. And what I find so funny about it is that I know exactly how the Warriors would attack the Warriors defensively, how the Warriors defense would attack the Warriors yeah. offense. And it's kind of been this holding pattern of waiting for oh, other by teams the to way, figure it out. By the way, we all we saw that in Luke Walton. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that was that was the biggest takeaway for me on Christmas was, oh, yeah, that's right. Luke Walton knows how to defend this team and was while Utah did it first. I think Luke and the Lakers were more blatant about it and more obvious about it in a way that I think a playoff series would absolutely happen, not only between those two teams, but a playoff series with numerous other opponents. And as you talked about, there aren't that many counters unless he starts making shots. Like there are things that you can try. And the easiest example of this is the Pelican series. Rajon Rondo did have some good moments and, you know, he's a, a talented player. Again, a capable passer can do other things on the floor. But when you just shift the geometry, when you shift the open space, it's really hard to deal with. And so if you can't make that person come out to help, and one way to do that, which is really interesting, that I would actually see the Warriors do, this is something in the lab that they can do, is using Draymond more as an off-ball screener. Because in those circumstances, 
it's harder to really double and to get into all those circumstances because the ball isn't there. And so maybe the challenge is communication and things like that. But the other thing that is a reminder of is having Draymond out there on the floor with another either non-shooter like Livingston or a reluctant shooter like any of their other centers. Well, actually, Kevon Looney is a less reluctant shooter at certain mm. points in time. But yeah. like, all those sorts of circumstances. And maybe that's the recalibration that needs to happen is- is just thinking of Draymond more like those guys and less like, I don't even know who the analog would be, maybe somebody like David West, who could shoot and did shoot sometimes, but it wasn't necessarily the best thing he did. Yeah, I I don't want to seem like I'm piling on considering what this team has pulled off. They've won back-to-back championships. They, you know, they, they unleashed just an incredible recruiting coup and getting Kevin Durant, but I do wonder if their accomplishment in getting that done has has made them develop a little slack in some of the other areas. They, they, they Maybe they're not as hungry. I don't know. Look, DeMarcus Cousins fell into their laps. We'll see how that works. But on the margins, it doesn't seem like they are getting what you would want out of their player development and out of their additions. Obvious caveat applies uh, where they cannot add the kinds of players other teams can add. They can't do it financially, but they also can get some guys who might play for them uh, for at a steep discount at the minimum. And so you, know, you just look at the situation. Uh, JaVale did not leave for more money. I, I, it's still not clear to me if they wanted him back at all. Uh, it, it seems interesting that, that he left. And then you have this other situation where you've got a lot of these non-shooters and you, you wonder would another organization that maybe was a little bit hungry or a little more desperate try to develop Kevon Looney's shot a little bit or uh, develop Sean's shot. Maybe it's impossible. Maybe he's just set in his ways as a veteran. But it's just it, it's so bizarre that at this stage in his career – uh, that there's nothing from beyond long range. And credit to them for adding Jarebko. That's worked out nicely. I, I'm not sure it's going to really be a postseason factor, but I, if I am to criticize the back-to-back champs a bit, it would be some of the stuff that worked better on the margins in the past doesn't seem to be working currently. Those are all fair, and I'll, I'll add in one more criticism, which is that they haven't really drafted for upside in the last few years. Like, I mean, you think about, I mean, Looney is, you know, now working out. He didn't for a couple of years. Well, and it's maybe not even drafting for upside. It's that they haven't been successful overall mm. drafting over the last few years. I mean, Looney is, you know, is, is on the team, and but some of that was just a long time. They declined the option before he did well. Damian Jones, I think, is, you know, a fringe kind of type of player. I did say they should pick up his option. They did, and then he got hurt. But again, he's more of like a rotation guy. The reason I advocated for them to pick it up was because they have no other centers on their roster. McCaw is a situation we could talk about if you want to, which is which is really interesting, but it looks like they're not going to get much value out of that pick. And so you think about yeah. that there are other guys, you know, if you want to go with Shemi Ojale or any number of guys that are more forwardy, and they've largely eschewed that position. You know, McCaw is, is a, a thin guard and, you know, is, can't really slide to the three. And the the Warriors didn't have an immediate need at that because you have when you especially once they drive once they got Durant you have Durant and Iguodala and Draymond Green if you're going to play him at the four and all these type of things but this is something I want to really give credit to Danny Ainge for Danny Ainge has understood for a long time you just try to go for as many of those guys as you can because some of them aren't going to work out and you can always use them. 
you know, like drafting Jalen Brown, drafting Jason Tatum, signing Gordon Hayward, like that would have created an overlap. And there are certain problems with it. But the Warriors are like, oh, we're good at those spots. We we need centers when you can get centers for nothing. And I mm. think that's an interesting value proposition. While Looney is better than a lot of the guys they could have gotten for the minimum, generally speaking, that is an easier gamble to make with where they have their great talent than trying to find like a three guard, like a three or a two guard or a four. I would agree with that. I, I, and you can get somebody like a JaVale McGee off the scrap heap. Um but it, it, it's interesting that those centers aren't developing. Maybe maybe we're a little too pessimistic on Damian Jones. I don't know. But he just doesn't look like he possesses the, the instincts that you would need at that position. Um, and that isn't working out either. So maybe uh, I think teams often get what they need to get done based on a little bit of desperation and hunger. And how could this team be hungry? Uh, it's just a natural motivation gap between them and everybody else that that is hard to uh it's it, it's hard to outsmart yourself it's hard to convince yourself that you need things that you don't necessarily need and they didn't really need these things to develop and now they're in a bit of a situation i think it's a little more precarious for this team uh than a lot of observers would assume um that's well, that, my call that, that ties I, I, in with something uh, it, i don't always like talking about something before I've written on it because it's like this Mm -hmm. is an idea that isn't necessarily out there yet, but this is going to be something I write in the next two weeks, is the Warriors to this point, and this will be a fun history lesson for the two of us who've been through it, they haven't really had to make too many hard calls. And that is not a criticism. That is praise of Bob Myers. They haven't had to. You know, the most notable example of this is Harrison Barnes. They didn't Mm. have to figure out if they wanted to pay Harrison Barnes a max contract, if they would have matched an offer sheet from Dallas or anything like that, because they got (laughs) Kevin Durant. I'll always remember, uh, I think I can tell this one, I think I have told this one, but I'll always remember uh, the summer before Harrison's contract ended, uh, talking to Jerry West uh, by the elevators at, at Warriors HQ and saying to him, what do you think about the stuff where, where Harrison's going to get a max contract where he could get around $20 million a, a year? What, what if that happens? And Jerry West uh, looks at the elevator and does a little southern pinky wave and goes – Baba. So I, I I don't know what they would have done necessarily, but I kn- I know where Jerry was at. So yeah. anyway, and he was a voice in the room at that time, and and would have been an important one. And so yeah, that would have been a hard decision. I mean, getting rid of Bogut wasn't particularly tough. I mean, especially because they didn't have to give up much to get off of his money. And the the toughest things they've really done in this, however we're defining the era, and for those who want to see all the moves, I mean, I wrote about this in my book, is like giving up the two first to get to get Andre Iguodala to clear the money to sign him. The negotiations with him, like they've had a lot of hard negotiations, but that's a different kind of, that's not really a decision necessarily. I guess it's like, do you want to pay him this money or let him go? And mm. But they haven't had to do that. And the, it's true that they aren't necessarily going to have a lot of tough decisions in the summer of 2019 because... The biggest thing is just what Kevin Durant does, and you offer him whatever contract he wants, and well, you just that, see what happens. That, that's the biggest thing. I, I got another. I got a text from somebody who knows some of these players, and he. This isn't any kind of aggregatable. This will happen, but I throw it to you. Um, what happens if not only KD leaves, but Clay leaves? 
Well, then you're you're basically rebuilding. I mean, you probably yeah. take that you probably take that next year and just kind of wait for stuff to wash off because Iguodala and Livingston. Well, Livingston they could theoretically cut him, but you could go either way at that point. And then you go into either. I mean, they could try to pivot really fast and say, "Hey, any other good free agents that are still around? Do you want to come play with Steph Curry?" But really, what I think they would do is they would become a fascinating team for the 2020 off season. And it's not a loaded class. I haven't gone through all of it yet. Still a little bit too far out for me. I don't think it's going to involve Anthony Davis in whole. Like, I mean, I think that he'll have made a decision in terms of what his future is. So I don't think he's necessarily in that mix. But yeah, I I think I think Rich Paul as his representation was a little bit of a blow to the Warriors. And we'll see how it plays out. Guys fire agents all the time. Oh, yeah. It's not a permanent it's not a permanent marriage. So well, and it's interesting that you mentioned that choice, because for me, what I was getting at with that, and this is what the piece will be about whenever I get around to writing it, is Draymond Green, because not because of the KD Draymond kerfuffle during the game or anything like that. But because they don't have that many moving parts on this team, and Draymond, they're going to have to make two decisions with him. One is what extension talks, wherever that goes after the season. He is ineligible to sign an extension now during the year, but he could next mm-hmm. next summer. And then the second part of that is is in free agency. And Draymond has a lot less leverage than I think he wants. Not just yeah. because he's struggling he is this year, playing but like the, he he's not going to get a max contract from another team. Right. Not 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 even close. And teams teams would be happy to give that to 2016 Draymond. They do not want to give that to this this current version, which is a uh, power forward Tony Allen. They, they just that's not going to happen. But yeah. And, and right now this is his age 28 season. Next year is going to be his age 29 season. So you're getting in all likelihood even if even if let's say this part of the season is an aberration. He's played in 22 games. Let's say when he gets to 60, the numbers look more in line with 2017-18 Draymond Green. That guy, when you're extrapolating out his age 30, 31, 32, 33 seasons, no, like that's not a max player. And the Warriors, their leverage is going to change around a lot based on what guys like Durant and what Clay do and everything like that. I mean, because where they are as a franchise is is important, but a lot of that... And and part of it is, I mean, it's funny because Clay is having just as disappointing a season, um, but... I, I think, and, and it, in my opinion, in their stretch run with the Warriors, Draymond has been a better player than Clay overall. Uh, I, I don't know if that's a controversial take. I have no clue. That would be my take. But there is this fundamental thing where offense is just more valued, and there's a monetary aspect to it. If you want to, as a as a team without a lot of players or one of these lottery teams, you can sell tickets to see Clay Thompson a little bit if you max out Clay. I don't know how well it would work building an offense around Clay. You can't really do that for for Draymond Green. So there's just a, I think that's a differentiating factor between the two if they both go on to have an equally disappointing season. But you were saying. Yeah, that that's a good point and it also ties in with something basic which is that Clay is more of a plug and play guy, especially like even if he's struggling from shooting I me, mean, he's a respected respected shooter and he can defend a couple of different spots and you can have him on ball off ball whereas Draymond Green he always needed a offensively a specific ecosystem he could succeed defensively in damn near any system that exists in the NBA but offensively it takes a lot and the Warriors happen to have that with Stephen Curry with Clay Thompson and even before Kevin Durant Harrison Barnes worked within that ecosystem some of the other stuff they did 
And so if you're saying, okay, we're going to pay Draymond even $25 million, which isn't even close to his maximum, you have to be really sure that the other pieces are going to make sense and that he's really going to push you over because Draymond, as great as he is, he looks to me to be kind of like the, the very, very elite version of those types of players like Trevor Reza, who are much more valuable to good teams than bad teams because yeah. Draymond will make your defense better for sure. Absolutely. But if like, let's say theoretically, you just threw Draymond on the Orlando Magic, their defense would get way better. I mean, he's just, he's an intelligent player. His communication would affect, like it would affect the young development of their guys. They could do a lot there, but he wouldn't really elevate their offense that much because teams could attack him in different ways. He wouldn't have as many passing angles, all those sorts of things. And so that narrows the field of teams that are going to be interested in him and interested in him at a high price. You know, sure, if Orlando could get Draymond for $10 million a year, yeah, they would probably do it because why not? But yeah. then that doesn't really affect the help his leverage against the Warriors. And so those kinds of decisions are exceedingly important. Now, this is not an argument to say the Warriors are going to trade Draymond this summer or they're going to trade him in February or anything like that. It just – it's a harder conversation to have. I, I, yeah, I just think everything's on the table. Oh, yeah. I, Other it, than it, trading it, Steph Curry, every single it, thing is on the table. Yeah, I think a few months ago that would have sounded crazy, and now it's on the table. I, that's that's how I would view it, and people can say it's December, and they would be right, and they would say don't panic. Uh, what does that mean? I'm not sure because – who really admits to panicking? Who really runs around screaming at the heavens? Uh, oh, oh, it happens. But, <laughs> but, and, but, and I think, yeah. and I mean, it's it's an interesting thing because, like, I still think the Warriors are the prohibitive favorites to win the 2019 NBA oh, championship. By the way, by the way, it is on the table as well because uh, what if KD tells you? And I don't think this has happened. But what if he tells you it's me, it's it's me or it's him? I mean, the Warriors would probably be relieved at this point. They would say, oh, thank God we get to keep Kevin Durant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's the funny thing. A me or him ultimatum. Like, I had this conversation with Ben Golliver like a month ago, like right after the, the thing happened. And if you could say, wait, if we trade Draymond, you're going to sign with us? Like, that mm-hmm. that would – because because what that would do, unless there's some sort of cascading thing with Clay that we can't – that I can't anticipate, at least at this moment – Okay, you you're going to be relevant at least for for the duration of that contract. Now, I'll ask you the question that he asked me. If Dream, if if Clay, sorry not Clay, if KD says that, but he's only willing to sign a one plus one, meaning one year and a player option, would you still do it then? Yes. I think knowing what we know right now, I think I would too. Now, I I am open to my the inputs changing between now and. June 25th, but knowing what we know right now, I would as well, because that one year of Kevin Durant, also that squares up the books a little bit, like there are a lot of things that could that could work out from that, and, you know, Draymond on what is functionally an expiring contract, I don't think it's going to get you a ton in return, but it can get you, uh, th- this needs with a theoretical Steph, Katie, Clay trio are very specific, and the type of things that they could acquire. No, and, and I don't, I, so we took a break, I don't know if I, we should tell people where the magic happens a lot has happened since we took the uh, the last break such as i lost i lost a pick i foolishly backed the wizards in part because i i, I tend to pick them without john wall but that's neither here nor there um but getting back to the subject at hand um i don't want to diminish the importance of of draymond and i i have thought he's been underrated for a long time and a lot of the cliches about heart and soul of the team maybe uh, a player who is in part definitional definitional to an definitional that's hard to say to an era um but yes i think that's a fairly 
maybe I won't say an easy call, but not a call I dwell on too much. That that's just the call that you would have to make, even if KD uh, agrees for just one more year, because that's just still, in my opinion, guaranteed uh, contention, top of the heap contention. Whereas I, I don't think it's the same the in the other direction. I don't think this is the 2015 Warriors team. They just aren't deep enough, and a lot of the young players, as we were talking about earlier, haven't progressed to the point where they can sustain such a void. Uh, the idea. If if Draymond indeed uh, did yell that we have won without you or whatnot, um, that's of the past. That's not this team. I don't think this team can win without Kevin Durant. I don't think they can be the clear-cut frontrunners. I do think that if KD left and players played to... I, I should, I'd say win, win the championship. Like, yeah, I wouldn't see, say I still, they would I still win, think yeah. they could. I just don't think it would be the same conversation. And, and also, you know, the teams that are out there and... It would be interesting. Also, what Steph Curry do they have? You know, is it this? Is it the guy that they had in fourteen fifteen? Is it the Steph Curry they had this year? Something in between? We'll have to see. Something I wanted to ask you. As far as I know, this is something we've never discussed, and it is kind of a question that I've been processing. It's part of the reason I haven't really written about it yet. Is unless you have specific information, it's going to be instinct. But how do you think that the Warriors moving to the Chase Center for next season affects? ownership's willingness to to pay or like their desire to be competitive because the old stereotype like the old adage is teams really want to be competitive their first year in a new building and that that adds a little onus to it now the Warriors are probably going to be championship contenders maybe even championship favorites either way but how do you think that's going to affect their thought process with such a big summer coming up hmm it's funny. I don't think about it in terms of how it uh, impacts their thought process. And I, I want to apologize a little bit as an aside. I'm speaking with a little less energy and vigor because I have a, a sleeping baby. So I just want to get that out of the way. Um, I, I think about it more in terms of is this a carrot for the free agents they're trying to sign? Because it is a situation in which the novelty has seen, seemed to wear off a bit. And you wonder if these guys are looking for some new motivation, and I do wonder, is it more appealing to Kevin Durant to move into the gleaming Chase Center in San Francisco as part of this glamour franchise that's moving into a more glamorous epoch? Uh, maybe he doesn't care about that at all, but I would think that that would probably be in the positive side of the ledger and to a certain extent similar for Clay. Although with Clay, it's a different circumstance, I think, just money-wise too. Uh, I, I haven't actually, you know, that's a question off the top of my head. I, I haven't looked recently. What is the money difference? What is the money difference that Clay is looking at if he goes versus if he stays? You are the master of this kind of uh, this kind of thing, Danny. Uh, what, what are we talking about here? So let's let's take it as an assumption because I think given how this season has started, it, it's fair to say that Clay Thompson is not going to make a you know an All NBA team, and that really does affect things for him because yeah. then that makes him ineligible for the designated the designated veteran contract. You know, you it doesn't have to be a full you know a full. 35% max, but it could theoretically be. And so let's say 30% either way. The difference mm -hmm. in the contract is five years, 189.7, if you want the, if you want to go all the way to the hundred thousandth place versus four years, 140.6. And I actually wrote about this a fair amount and ended up kind of being right on the Gordon Hayward circumstance that Sometimes with younger free agents, and Clay is going to be on that borderline, the biggest difference between those two numbers, the 189 and the 140, is that fifth season. Over mm. the first four years of that contract, 
the difference is about six million. Now, six million dollars, nothing to sneeze at. It's a lot of money for people like you and me. It, 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 but for a basketball player who's already making 140 million on this contract, I don't know how much that matters. Now, the Warriors have the benefit of being a desirable situation. You're the only team he's ever played on. They're going to be a competitive team, presumably, as long as he is there and, and everything else stays together. But the money part of it to me isn't as important unless he values that fifth season. Now, it is entirely possible that he does. That was, I mean, 43 million in that fifth year is almost definitely more than we would expect him to make unless the salary cap goes even more crazy over the next four years. But that's a, it's a little bit more in the abstract because people say, oh, he's leaving, you know, he's leaving 50 million on the table. Well, he is and he isn't. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's always a little bit, um, and it, the call dropped out somewhat, so I so I so I missed at least part of that. But the leaving on the table gets a little bit tricky um, yeah. when people are talking about the extra year. You know, it's not necessarily the same thing if you're right. more likely to recoup uh, as much as that amount or near it. And somebody like Clay, I think. Yeah, his defense might decline a little bit, but I would expect him to age pretty well, right? If if Reggie Miller played until, I mean, how long was Reggie Miller an effective star player um, in an era where where guys maybe weren't as hip to taking care of their bodies? I don't think Reggie Miller lifted weights either. I'm just looking for a Clay Comp um, or a Ray Allen. I mean, those guys were were pretty good at their their jobs for a long time. So if that's the model, then he should be he should be uh, a top level getting getting around max money for a while. Yeah. Yeah, he could make a lot. So Reggie, his last season of 19 or 20 points per game was his age 32 season, but he scored 18.9 per game in his age 35 season. So mm-hmm. granted, I mean, I don't think Clay's going to get up 15 shots a game like Reggie did that year, but I mean, who knows? He was the Warriors. He was close to the shot lead up until a couple days ago. So yeah, you could see Clay aging really well. The The other consideration there, which I kind of vacillate on with him more so than with Draymond, is how his defense is going to age because Clay will lose some value and versatility. Generally, what happens, and we've seen this with Andre Gudala, is defenders who rely on length, which is something that Clay does when he's defending ones, mm-hmm. generally they become more susceptible to speed guards. And, you know, that's okay. It's just a little bit of a different challenge. So then, if whoever the water bug of the day is, if that's Dennis Smith getting a whole lot better than he is right now, or somebody else like that, he might have some problems with those types of guys. But he's smart. He works hard. He has positional size. He and so I think that he should age pretty well there. And that's a difference with him and Reggie too. Now it's a very different league, and Reggie is famous for taking really good care of his body. But I think there's a reason to believe that Clay can age well as long as he hits jump shots at a better rate than he is so yeah. far this year. Well, now this is the, these are the tangents we get on. Now I'm looking up the All-Star games of Ray Allen and, you know, when was Reggie Miller last in All-Star? Uh, the last All-Star game for Ray Allen was uh, he was age 35. Uh, yeah, and Reggie's was age 34. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's a fairly positive indicator for if you think, if you buy the premise that he's that kind of player. Uh, for that kind of player, um, maybe with more defensive responsibility. Yeah, and as a point of reference, Clay's next contract will begin with his age 29 season, so that age 34 would be his fifth year. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I took your question. Actually, it would be his to... sixth year, so that would be age 33 would be his fifth year. I can <laughs> I do math. Qu- <laughs> I took your question, and I took it in a completely insane direction. And uh, uh, I, That's what I, we do. <laughs> I apologize for that, uh, but yeah, I don't know how the ownership thinks about it. I think the ownership just wants to be great forever. I think yeah, that's true. That's that's that's, that's effectively. Well, 
the Joe Lacob thing, and I don't I don't quite know if that is actually feasible. And you can see we might be at a point where um you know where you're seeing I this is the way I think about it and how I'm going to write about it and how I talk about it where you do wonder if this is the last dance as is the title of the Bulls Jordan last year of that particular dynasty documentary that will be out in Netflix on I don't know 2032 or whenever they're finally coming out yeah, with that how but, often is there a trailer more than a year before the thing comes out I guess it does happen periodically like maybe with the, like Star Wars episode one or something like that it, it might have happened but yeah I, I'm excited for that I don't think Steve Kerr is going to get punched in the face this time I'm not entirely <laughs> sure I'm not going to write off the possibility mm-hmm. but yeah, I think that the, the Warriors, what's so interesting about it is the sheer amount of variance. Like, I mean, yeah, there was a lot of variance in 2016 with Kevin Durant and all that. And I mean, there were there were some of us that were at the at kind of the forefront of what might happen then. But the Warriors were a really good team. They they If they had run it back, I mean, that I don't think they would have gone 73 and 9 again, but they had a really strong group together there. This time, because the players are older, because they're more socked in salary cap wise, this could go, you know, it's not going to go badly. Like they're, they're still going to be a very good team unless they decide to break it up. But it's the, the option, the path between being a championship favorite or like a, a serious contender for the next two, three years to a last dance type of scenario where they'll still be in the mix, but they're not going to be the favorite and they're going to need a lot of things to go right to really be there. Yeah, I think that is the range. Um, and I'm just trying to disabuse – I don't know why I'm trying to disabuse people of any notion. I just don't think that it's going to be if, – if Durant leaves, I just don't think it's going to be like what life was like before his arrival. Even though the stats are sort of interesting about how well they've done and the games he's missed, I just don't – I think there's been too much erosion. It's not exactly the strength in numbers warriors right now well, and, and, and beyond that i mean you think about that those teams were going after everything like that to me people mm-hmm. ask me a lot about the 73 and 9 team and like what the difference are i was asked this in a radio spot a couple of days ago and i'm like well that team wanted to win every minute of every game like that would they had that mentality for whatever reason there is nothing that can give this team that sense of urgency for every game in november and december they've just no. proven they've proven too much they're not at that point in their careers and you know i, I think back Back to this is a strange reference, but it's something that we've talked about before. With uh, there's, there's a thing in the Defiant Ones, which is that documentary on Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre, and Dre talks about, which is the first time I think I've ever heard this so clearly, about how like writing lyrics and all of that is really a young person's game because you're living that life, you know. It's, it, because also because successful people, oftentimes, especially musicians, they separate from the hardships that made that that make for such good writing material. That's kind of what the Warriors are now. They've lived that life mm. for too long that they can't go back to that grind and they don't particularly want to they don't need to they're not doing it right now and so that would be a different challenge now would as a like five or six seed theoretically if it went that way they would probably scare the daylights out of almost anybody but i don't see them you know just walking into new orleans man new orleans is maybe a bad example because of ad like walking into charlotte someday and just be like we need to crush these guys like that's just not mm-hmm. really the way they're they're wired anymore in the regular season yeah, and I would call that a, a little bit of winners all we, uh, just the sense of 
accomplishment, it, it diminishes the more you accomplish. That's just how we work as human beings. It, you get to this point where, you know, what, what is the difference between winning three championships and four championships? Now it's different. It's better to have four than three. Uh, but it ain't the difference between none and one. I mean, that's, that's an order of magnitude different than the difference between three and four. And that's just how we, we work as human beings. And you see as what, to what you're referring to, um, a lot of the focus can shift from what was just trained on with a laser-like you know, gaze in the uh, regular season to more looking at the bigger picture in, in the postseason. The regular season starts to matter less and less, as you saw with the, the Cavs, the LeBron Cavs, um, before the Warriors. And something I'm, I'm enjoying about this team, especially Andre, is that he's very comfortable with that being their identity. You know, the, he's the, the thing about he's like, I'm a, I think he said I'm a May June type of player, which mm-hmm. is a really not coded way of saying, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not going as hard as I need to right now because he doesn't have to. And something lots of players, Kobe's talked about this before is that it's harder to, to physically get ready for every game to be at a hundred percent all the time. That's really what aging is. It's not necessarily about you can't, you, your vertical leap drops by two inches. It's how much work it takes to get back to where you want to be. And that ties in with Draymond, all of that stuff. I mean, right at this time last year, the story that I was talking about with Golden State was, is Draymond Green in the downturn now, or is the, and this was more defensive, or is it just he's conserving himself? And the answer at that point in time ended up becoming, that we didn't know it then, that he was mostly conserving himself. He was great on defense overall last year in the playoffs. And there is a little bit of that here with him. I don't worry about that at all with Clay because that effort and, you know, all that kind of stuff isn't what he's doing wrong. Yeah, I don't, I don't worry about Clay physically declining so much. Andre, a little bit of concern, but I worry less than other people. Um, I guess what, I what about Livingston? Le- Le- uh, yes, that's a worry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and that's something the Warriors are, are that is has to be a consideration here. Is just they have a lot of money, they have you know a lot of flexibility tied up in guys that the reasonable expectation is that next year will be worse than the previous year. And that makes it a lot harder. You're going to need gains from guys a lot lower on the totem pole or, or to keep finding McKinney's and Jerebko's, that sort of thing. And that I, I want to move on to other things with Warriors, but one thing I want to mention that I think an underrated key to the success that they've had in the in the two Durant years that is really missing this year is David West. Mm-hmm. And David West played for the minimum and was just such a consistent force in an area where the Warriors would have been really troubled. And that was that second unit when Steph wasn't playing. And those lineups broadly were not good offensively, but with David West and often with Draymond Green, they were really, really good defensively. And that's one theory of a second well, unit is to and, just and, grind and, it out. And, and also you could just feel, you could find a little rhythm in, in the way he knew how to run a pick and roll. Um, the Warriors don't have a bunch of bigs who can, who can do that. And yeah, that, that shot could come and go that, that mid range jumper that, that, that David West had, but it was just, it was a comfortable rhythm for somebody like the aforementioned Livingston, who I'm looking is now at a 47% true shooting, uh, this season. Oof. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty not good. Um, and but then there's the question of the Warriors keep missing these guys, as Marcus says, who either leave uh, leave for nothing or they could have gotten back somehow. I don't know the exact circumstances of of, of West. He might have just wanted to retire no matter what. But it's interesting how they don't they they aren't alluring enough or don't seem to want to woo enough some of these peripheral guys who they end up uh, missing later on. Javale McGee aforementioned. Yeah, I was watching 
Pelicans Mavericks a little bit ago, and while Ian Clark leaving was not catastrophic or anything like that, he could help this year's team. You know, and he went <laughs> he went to New Orleans, and he has played because, as is ruled, the Pelicans have a bunch of guys out with injury. But you know, there there are various players in those sorts of molds, and remember. Quinn Cook kind of came out of nowhere on last year's team. He was a two-way player, and then they could have, you know, unilaterally converted him, but then they came to the agreement that they, that they ended up coming to and having it be a well, kind of a one-and-a-half-year deal. Well, Ian... Ian left because Nate was just so critical. That, oh, that yeah. was what the yeah, that's that that was the real reason that no, but <laughs> <laughs> that, that's why Harrison left too because we were all so mean to him. Yeah, Ian uh, Ian did have a nice chemistry with with David West though. He did. That, that he, he would uh, complete all those little uh, passes off the off the cut and would actually finish pretty well. That was the only time Ian Clark would finish well would be off one of those David West passes. So uh, yeah, now I'm getting nostalgic for some of the uh, deep. Warriors dynamics of your yeah, we're not even going to get nostalgic about the early teams that we covered because they were fun in a whole different way. But we'll save that for a different podcast when this is when this is all over. We can we can reflect on the 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 real glory years, which were when they were awful. But <laughs> oh, yes, lots more to talk about with Ethan. But first, a message from BetOnline.ag. This is an absolutely fantastic time of year for sports fans. Not only do you have the NBA with great games almost every night, but the NFL is about to enter the playoffs and college football. You have the New Year's Day bowl games coming up. I'm recording this shortly before the college football playoff, which is going to be on Saturday, which I'm very excited about. And then the championship game will be in a few weeks. So betonline.ag is a great place to go to follow your passions, to make games that you are going to watch anyway have higher stakes, or to make games more interesting, whatever you're getting into it. And if you use that podcast one promo code, you get a 50% signup bonus, which is awesome. It tells them you came from us, but also gives you more to work with, which is fantastic. So whether you are into hockey, basketball, football, there's just, just a lot going on right now. So you can check that out and also make sure if you're into it and it's a really fun way to engage to check out their in-game live betting where you can participate with all the action in every play. And again, use that promo code podcast one for a 50% signup bonus betonline.ag your online sportsbook experts. Plenty more to talk about with Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, but first a message from TrueCar. 60 seconds. That is exactly how long this commercial lasts. You know what else you can do in about a minute? Get an offer for your car with TrueCar. That's right. In the amount of time it takes to floss your teeth, pet your dog, do a few sit-ups, or just listen to my voice, you can get a true cash offer. Best of all, you can do it from your smartphone or home. Just go to TrueCar and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Answer a few questions and you will get an accurate true cash offer from a local True Car certified dealer. It is that easy. After that, you can bring your car in, they'll check it out with you together. You can ask questions, get the answers you need so there are no surprises. Then, simply leave with your check or trade in your car for a new ride. So, when you are ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. I want to transition to something that you've been doing, which has been a lot of fun for me as a thought experiment, really, which is the Strauss versus the House concept of trying consistently and and largely succeeding at 
actually betting NBA lines, something that I've been asked about a lot, something that I've considered at various moments, but have never really pursued and definitely not pursued with the zeal that you have done. Yeah. So it's uh, the Strauss, Strauss versus the house. And it's funny to be talking about it now. I feel a little bit last dance with it. I haven't, I haven't come out with the article explaining this, but we have plans to, uh, put a pause on it at pick 100 just because I, I do need to, um, write some longer articles and there is this feeling of robbing Peter to pay Paul. I, I had my worst week when I was on the road doing a story on an advanced scout where I think I went three and seven and maybe that was variance. Maybe that was a regression to the mean, but I could feel myself getting lazy and picking sloppily and not watching any film because I was, I was putting my energy into somewhere else. So I, I do think that we are going to put a pause on it, but it has been educational for me to go through this and I, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy what you end up noticing. I feel as though I learned more about the league. Um, one of the things I felt that I learned is that there's kind of, um, a rock, paper, scissors dynamic among big men where it's just so much more decisive than it is for other kinds of players where certain bigs just own other bigs and I feel that this is more true of bigs because they're a little less resilient than the smaller players are who will by and large have a little more confidence, a little more tenacity. And if they got dominated one night, they're just going to come out against that, that same guy, that same defensive player with a, with a lot of fire trying to prove them wrong with a lot of big men. If they get stopped the first two times, they're just going to stop. You know, I think Tom Haberstroh had some amazing stat on Roy Hibbert that in games uh, where he missed his first shot, he would go on to shoot something like 20, 20-something percent. And in games where he made the first shot, he would go on to shoot, I don't know, mid-50s. I can't remember the exact numbers for it. So I, I now see this rock-paper-scissors dynamic, which is a little bit of arbitrage, a little bit of a market inefficiency where you go, huh, you know, Joel Embiid kind of dominates Anthony Davis defensively and Marcus Gasol kind of dominates Joel Embiid defensively and for whatever reason Carl Anthony Towns just can't handle Drummond you know that's not somebody who by the we've seen this is a little more storied or maybe Instagram storied uh, that Joel has a lot of fun going against uh, Andre Drummond and it's just funny I, I didn't really notice this dynamic uh, until embarking on this particular uh, on this particular journey. Well, and it makes sense that the things that you would learn would be elements that you just wouldn't really consider, especially because it's in matchups that are kind of not arbitrary, but that don't don't necessarily happen all the time. This isn't like yeah. necessarily a division game. Like the, you, you brought up Drummond and Towns, they play twice yeah. a year. You know, so they, so play, that, they, they play twice a year, and the track record in this quirky matchup uh, that means nothing in the grand scheme of things is that uh, Drummond's team has won seven of seven games against Towns' team. Uh, with with Drummond putting up fantastic numbers, uh, but yeah, there's no reason to know about that. Maybe, but it was interesting to learn it because it just wouldn't have occurred to me that such a thing would be would be so. It wouldn't have, I wouldn't have assumed that Andre Drummond would give Carl Anthony Towns the business. It also makes intuitive sense because there aren't as many other options for big men. So let's let's bring up the perimeter. So for example, you you, you generally I, I mean one, two, and three. Sometimes the four. All of those guys can largely, if you have a good defender, you can throw them on somebody like Drew Holiday defending Kevin Durant last year in the playoffs. There are lots of examples. Is Kawhi guarding everybody? Any anywhere you want to go here for good or for bad players, and for a big generally that's going to be the person on you other than in a switch situation because there isn't as much versus 
versatility defensively. And so that individual matchup matters more. And also just with the way centers in particular are viewed within an offensive scheme right now, other than the best of the best, it's, you know, an offensive option that you want to try certain teams, you know, go to the go to that big man post up early to keep them engaged or everything like that. But nowadays, there's so much more shooting talent, there's so much more going on offensively that some teams are kind of looking for a reason to go somewhere else. And if the guy struggles early, then they're probably not going to get as many of those opportunities. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a great observation that the big versus big is more of um, a locked in matchup than all the other matchups. So there's there's a little more fluidity where you know, maybe maybe Marcus Smart does a pretty good job denying uh, hard and easy shots. Harden seems to draw a lot of fouls in those matchups, but it's not just going to be smart on Harden, and who knows with all the switches. So, no, that, that, that's that's a really good observation, um, and I, I it's 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 just been so educational. I, I do I will miss doing it. I think it's necessary to step away from it. Um, but I will miss doing it just, just because of learning things like that. And also it's just fun. It's just fun to have a little bit of emotional investment. We're so that, that to me was part of it. It was to recapture something like being a fan without the commitment of being a fan, the, uh, the, the sort of commitment that might make you perhaps too biased, right? It, because it was just single serving. Like one night I'm the biggest, uh, I'm the, I'm the biggest Pacers fan in the world. The next night I'm the biggest Rockets fan in the world. It, it was just fun to go up and down like that, um, and have it be also, uh, also ephemeral. Right. And it's a nature, part of the nature of us as, you know, writers and analysts and being egotistical beings as, as damn near all of us are, that you want to be right. And oh, it's, yeah. and, it's it, and when you're doing it publicly, I mean, I know this is somebody who's been making public predictions for a long time, even though I rarely have money on them. But there is something involved in that. You you want to be right. And like I've said before, I'm happy to be wrong if it means that somebody's being successful. But it pisses me off a lot if I think something's going to be successful and then it's wrong. Like, for example, I, my, Amin and I talked about this a little bit at the end of, of our podcast about how we're both frustrated with the jazz, partially because it makes us look bad. And, and yeah. I, I, th- I think that's definitely true. And what is a challenge for, you know, with, with what we do is – I don't think of it as necessarily having a rooting interest in various things, though, you know, there you have in the back of your mind, oh, I predicted this team would win 38 games. Mm-hmm. This would this would put them on a 40 win pace. And so you're going, OK, how, do, how does that affect things? But with everything being a one off, it's it feels like it's closer to that mix of of ephemeral but still important enough to actually care about and that yeah. is that is a balance that is hard to strike with what we do it, it is um and it's a little taboo too which was fun it was it was fun to do something a little bit taboo uh some coaches and players would ask about it i i didn't know for instance till i started doing this that in every coach's meeting the first thing that's brought up is what's the line tonight that's the icebreaker uh, and it makes sense. We don't think that they would notice, but the coaches are a little invested in what the public perception of their team is, and they think in terms of math, and it's an obvious conversation starter. Oh, they think of that of us? Um, and I, I guess when, when it comes to being right and wanting to be right, I, for me, um, I can feel okay about losing as long as I know why I made the call I did. My 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 goal in doing this, and I would fail quite frequently, even if you're doing well, you're going to fail quite frequently, was I need to explain to myself why 
I have found a market inefficiency or what I am targeting is the market inefficiency. And I might be wrong about what the market inefficiency is, but at least I'm telling myself uh, this is this is why, as opposed to I just want some action. You know, all of these are coin flips anyway. This is my selection. Like tonight, I I lost because I picked the Wizards uh, hosting the Bulls. I think it was a four point five spread. And to me, it's that when I've watched John Wall has been so terrible that I thought that it was a, it was frankly addition by subtraction. Uh, it didn't work out that way. Um, the Wizards offense was awful and the Wizards are small and they got completely bullied by Robin Lopez, who I don't think I really considered as a somebody who'd be a major factor in the game but it was a reminder that the wizards are just too damn small um and so but yeah you watch that and you learn and you're reminded of things and you go okay i'm going to remember this about the wizards going forward uh but i can feel okay about losing because at least i know why i did what i did as the first person who said to me process over results and results over process that makes sense that you go through it and and i think really that is what in the prediction game what really makes you sleep at night is is that we're all going to get them wrong but if you have a cogent rationale and ideally you learn something from getting something wrong then it that works out i mean like I, th- we predict over unders for all 30 teams predict award winners every all sorts of other stuff prospect rankings billion other things and some of them are right some of them are not, but you go through it. And, and, and part of what makes this worthwhile for me is the uncertainty of it. Because if it were so predictable, then it wouldn't be fun. And it, it would be something else. You know, it's not like we're trying to predict the outcome of a scripted television show or we're trying to predict something else. You know, there, like, I, I use Victor Oladipo as an example here a lot. Victor Oladipo, I didn't think he was ever going to be as good as he was last year. I'm thrilled about it. Like, I, I, he's become one of my favorite players to watch. That Pacers team was elevated by a lot of different things. I thought Nick McMillan did a wonderful job. You know, Sabonis coming on is another underrated element. Miles Turner's gotten way better defensively. There are a bunch of different things. Thaddeus Young's defense is something I'm appreciating now. But Oladipo, you know, I trashed that trade because I thought Oladipo wasn't going to be that good. I was wrong. But there wasn't anything in his, like, in what he had done. I'd watched him closely. I knew his game well. To think, oh, well, he just has this sitting dormant. It's just you know, Russell Westbrook's holding him back or something else. And if those sorts of things didn't happen, I would be less engaged in my job because it wouldn't be as fun. Yeah, nobody knows what's going to happen happen when the ball uh, is tossed up in the air and so many things can't think about if you're picking pelicans games how many games has anthony davis gone to the locker room in the middle of the game right it's there there are a lot of variables and sometimes you win the battle at least for the picks and you lose the war right i mentioned earlier that marcus Gasol does this amazing job on joel Embiid. sure but the last time those two teams played each other uh, Memphis uh, was beaten against the spread, even though uh, the lid was kept on Embiid. Uh, you know, sometimes there are many different factors. You can be correct about one in particular, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be correct overall. Uh, but I, I like it. It's given me some some concepts to toy with. The one I'm the, my my trying to make fetch happen that we were talking about at the game last night was a uh, jo- uh, employment versus joblessness. This idea that you need to factor into a matchup whether if there's a defensive player who's particularly strong um, in, a, in an odd way, ideally you would like him to have a, a job, to have an offensive player he can quell a bit uh, that matters to how that team functions and operates. And if he doesn't have that guy to focus on, 
uh, then it's just not that much of an advantage. I'm not sure if I'm explaining it cogently, uh, but y- y- you know what I'm saying. And I, I think that's it. That's a concept that I started to get into when picking these games, and it would work out pretty well. Um, I, one I'm thinking about with um, speaking of speaking of uh, Drummond versus Towns. If we look at Covington as the best defensive player on the Wolves, then you look at how Detroit runs their offense. It's not like Covington has a tremendous job in that particular matchup, right? And I think that, in a way, works out funny enough for uh, for the Pistons. Um, so that's that's an example of the kinds of concepts I wasn't really thinking about that I now think about more. So I didn't think of this until af- long after our conversation last night, but another example of this on more of a macro level is a team that has a strength that the other team doesn't really deal with. And so what I was thinking of here was Boston versus Milwaukee. So Milwaukee, one of the most incredible things about their season so far, striking things, is that they have been dominant involving the rim. So they've been, I think they're top two in both getting to the rim, scoring at the rim on offense, and then also preventing shots at the rim and in terms of frequency and success rate. And that's great. You know, like that is the foundation of a successful defense is the foundation of a successful offense. But the Boston Celtics don't really get to the rim that often. They don't get to the foul line that often because that's not how their best players operate. You know, Kyrie Irving is a fantastic offensive player, but he doesn't draw many fouls. It's always been a weakness. And so there you can kind of argue that Milwaukee's scheme benefit is a little Mm. bit jobless because there isn't as much of a place for it to wield as an advantage. The same could be said for Rudy Gobert in a series against various teams. I mean, maybe even I don't think this series is going to happen, but a a Utah-San Antonio series, let's say, because they shoot so much from the mid-range, they're not getting to the rim that often. I think they're like 29th or 30th. And so you get into those circumstances as well, where a team's strength just doesn't matter as much, or you're trying to, you're trying, Portland, you know, trying to force mid-range shots. If they're facing a team that is a great mid-range shooting team, well, then you're conceding something fundamentally different. And, yeah, and uh, I, I'm reminded of the Spurs just completely uh, demolishing them in San Antonio. I think last time those teams played, mm-hmm. um, unless they've played, I, unless they, they've had another matchup after that point, but that game I watched, and yeah, it was, it, it was a lot of that combined with just the other dynamic of uh, DeRozan feasting on those small guards. But you were saying. Yeah, so you have a couple of those different dynamics in place. And then you could talk about individual defenders. Covington's a good example of this. Or, you know, any really any dominant forward defender, and then they're facing a team that just doesn't have that as a strength, and you're sitting there going, well, well what's that guy going to do? And there are certain circumstances where that player can become dominant as a help guy. I think Kawhi can be unleashed, especially in that, because he just has amazing instincts. His hands go on for miles and everything else. But it is a different challenge, and there are certain guys. Avery Bradley is probably the single single best example of this, there are certain guys who are way better on-ball than off-ball, and there are certain guys who are way better off-ball than on-ball. That's just the nature of strengths, and people think, great defender, oh, they have to do everything, or they have to do this well or that well, they have to be that, you know, shut-down corner equivalent, and I think that's something else that I've been really appreciating about defense recently, is that just like offense, there are players that thrive in very different circumstances, and appreciating that and understanding, okay, that's where this player is going to succeed, that's where this player is going to fail, it helps a lot, not only in terms of predicting games, but theoretically in terms of team building as well, because you want to make sure that players have complementary strengths and also not have as much duplicative strengths, because in that case, you're not reaping the full benefit. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a very good way to put it. Um, I'm also just thinking about more jobless versus employed uh, examples. I think uh, an employment example. Sorry, you were saying? No, go ahead. Oh, yeah. An, an employment example is uh, Bradley and, and, and Pat, Pat Bev going against the, the Kings where they're not they don't have a tremendous amount of offensive responsibility um, against uh, they, in general because that that offense is run through the forwards and they can just focus on their full employment against the Kings of going against uh, Fox and, and Keeled, for instance. Um, here's another one. It, just the quirks of the league I wouldn't really think about at all because it wouldn't matter to me. It wasn't germane to following the Warriors. But tonight, uh, the Lakers and the Clippers are playing, and I just don't know. Okay, so home court advantage is usually worth between two and three points. If it's at altitude, uh, maybe we're talking more in the three to four range. Uh, what is it worth in a circumstance like that? What is home court advantage worth to the Clippers? Does anybody know? Could anybody put a number on that? Yeah, I mean, because it's, it's a real test of the crowd because I believe the Lakers and Clippers have their own locker room, so it's not like they have to deal with the, like a dingy visitor's locker room or anything like that. They get to be in their own place. And unless I would assume they don't make, because this game is technically hosted by the Lakers, they don't make the Clippers go to the visiting locker room. That would be weird. I mean, these types of things interest me, so I don't don't really know. But And so you get the home crowd, but you also have rims you're familiar with. You get to sleep in your own bed. You have all those sorts of things. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And the Lakers are coming off a back-to-back that involved traveling down from Sacramento. And the Clippers, I believe, did not play on Thursday. So, yeah, it's it's a lot of things to consider. And... Something I wanted to throw to you about this experience, and I I, I think that these two things feed together, is are there any teams or players that you've really grown to appreciate more by this, like watching certain games really closely approach? Yeah, I think aforementioned Marcus Ole. Um, I had an appreciation. Uh, I had an appreciation of him before, but now it's now it's just more so. Um, just the way that. And, and, you know, that team always erodes a little bit and he gets injured and Conley gets injured and, you know, they might not make the playoffs, but I, I would I would just be impressed in how he would demoralize opposing bigs and how they would just stop. I mean, Embiid would stop calling for the ball. Um, and so he's somebody I got impressed with or came away impressed by. And uh, Covington, the aforementioned Covington was another guy where I really liked what I saw of him. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know if there are a tremendous range of players where I just, I, I have a completely new opinion about them than I, than I had before. Um, that, that aren't covered as, as narratives and people aren't talking about. You know, I've, I've watched a lot of Clippers. I've picked a lot of Clippers. I, I don't think that I'm reinventing the wheel and saying that I, I think Gallo is really talented and, and an underrated player. I think, I mean, now we're getting off on a tangent. I wrote about this one. Tobias Harris is an interesting one because I I enjoy watching him, but certain teams are smart about blitzing him in pick and roll, and he doesn't handle it well. And so he can be hacked in a way that that Gallo won't be hacked. And so that is another idiosyncrasy to uh, to be mindful of. Uh, so it, it's funny. I don't know if I came away just saying, oh, I think this player is so much better than I thought before, but I would just get a better sense of maybe the quirks. And in a way, you're just clued into some of the flaws more so. Oh, Marcus Smart is another guy to throw in there. I love oh, Marcus yeah. Smart. 
Oh, he, yeah. He's and and the way that Stevens gets to use him now that he's starting is is really fun because they have a lot of capable defenders, but you could just six smart on whoever you want, and it, it's so much fun to watch. And he's getting a little bit better, a little bit better about not taking as many of those terrible shots, which is totally necessary. I love I love watching Marcus Smart. The series that really set me on him was when he guarded Paul Millsap a lot in that. Mm. that Hawk series a couple of years ago and just sitting there going like, this is impressive. Like he's, you know, and it was another reminder of something that, you know, covering Draymond Green for years has been all the reminder I ever needed, but how height is very overrated in terms of matchups and assignments and everything like that. It is important. I'm not going to say otherwise, yeah. but physical strength. Yes. Yeah, strength wing, is underrated. Wings, I mean, that... man, all of those type mm-hmm. of things. And, and so like, there are a lot of good examples is PJ Tucker's success defensively in various matchups, though, incidentally, not on LeBron James when the Raptors traded for him for explicitly that purpose. He's yeah. a good example. Eric Gordon's a good example. And even though his game infuriates me a large portion of the time, Dion Waiters is actually a really good example. It's just a physically strong guy. And what that does, especially against a, guy, a player who is not dominant with the ball in their hands, is it's just a greater impediment. And so you're sitting there going, well, they can't really do much with this. And that made me realize that there is a, this, there are these very different forces in play. And you could get into like center of mass. And if you want to get more technical with it, you certainly well, can. No, it's, it's, it's a real thing. And yeah. when we were talking about Gasol, that's a huge part of why Gasol is a great defensive player is you can't move him. Embiid wants somebody that he can move and he, he wants to get to his spot and bigs want to get to their spots and strength is a huge, that's a huge part, uh, part of that. And it's not talked about as much. We just sort of take, we sort of take the height of players as a proxy for their, uh, for their bigness and for their, for their physical strength. And it's not necessarily, not necessarily the case. Yeah, and th- and there are examples of this also on the other end. And I mean, Andrew Wiggins is one at frequent moments in time. Brandon Ingram is this too. Players that have the size, especially in terms of wingspan, maybe vertical leap, depending on how we're going with all this kind of stuff, but don't use it on a frequent basis. There are, there are lots of examples of this, guys, with low block rates who also aren't, you know, like doing other things to make you, make you see it. And I understand why these shorthands exist. Like there... And there's an example of this with with RPM, which is ESPN's, you know, black box stat. And one of the things that we know is in there is that guys with low steal rate and block rates get a big downgrade in terms of defensive RPM due to something called the box score prior and a couple other things. And the reason for that is because by and large, it's right. You know, by and large players with low steal rates and low block rates, just like guys with small wingspans or, you know, guys that are various different guys that are short, like Trey Young is an example here. There is a kind of an understanding that, that generally those things are true, but the exceptions might be another good example of arbitrage. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, and I like the idea of finding an exception to um, to those particular rules. Oh, another guy, another big. I mean, again, this is a guy where it's not reinventing the wheel to say, wow, this dude is so good, but it gave me a new appreciation. It's just watching these games where Steven Adams grabs every offensive rebound, it's just, it's so impressive and so demoralizing to the opposition, and demoralizing if you are picking against the Thunder, and in the grand game of big man rock, paper, scissors, who he he really just completely humiliated Drummond a few weeks ago just <laughs> yeah. completely completely hornswoggled and so that's another guy where the more you watch Steven Adams the the more impressed you are uh the the more the, the more you come away thinking this guy might be a, a top 20 player 
He's fantastic. And I cracked up because it'll be a great opportunity to do this on the, so Nate and I are doing a 15 and 60, which will be a mailbag. And somebody asked the question of like, why, like is Steven Adams, it seems like he's really overrated on defense. And so it's like, oh, great. Like I'm happy somebody asked me this question so I can go into defensively, like all the stuff he does that's hard to quantify with statistics and, and how this again gets into kind of the idea of we want to call it stereotyping of there are ways. And I think it's, it's something a little bit different too. Like there are ways to succeed that can't be measured by stats, but it's also that a lot of times we choose to value the statistics because it is what we can see and what we can measure. And so Mm -hmm. a great example of this for me is block shots. So block shots are a useful thing for sure. Like a block shot, it it can often create an offense possession. It can create transition one. It can be demoralizing, all these sorts of things. But there are other, depending on like on an individual possession, probably not more important, but overall similarly important things like affecting shots, like shot changing or intimidation or all those type of things where, you know, like, Seth Partnow did a better job when he was at Nylon Calculus of of kind of quantifying this than anybody I've seen. But the reason those aren't as big is because blocks are a good shorthand and they're fun and, you know, you can make them on a highlight reel and everything else. And it's, it's hard, you know, it's really hard because you have to watch a lot of film and you never know if your eyes are betraying you and you can't watch all 82 games of every team. You know, nobody has the time to do that. And so you, you have to kind of separate the signal from the noise in a, in a very different way. And I think Adams is a good distillation of some of those things. I would completely agree with that. And, um, so I don't know. I'm tempted. Are you ever tempted to just take a year off and just just do this for a living, just to bet on the NBA? Is that ever a temptation? I was asked about that since I started doing this, and I I like writing. I think I'm a better writer than I am a, a game picker. But man, it is tempting just to do it for a year to do it for real. Tempted is probably a strong word. If I were ever less satisfied with what I did, then yes, I I think that it would because there are and and something I've talked about before is the idea of maybe like doing the first two weeks of the season more aggressively because I feel like I know more than the line setters at that moment and they do a really good job I mean that, that that's the whole point but once things settle down and people start to get a sense of teams if, if I just have a really good read on something doing it that way but yeah I mean as somebody who has done a lot of different things from a career perspective, I have no opposition to trying something different, trying something bold and, and seeing what can happen with it. It's also getting a lot easier to do that now as, as the mm-hmm. laws are changing and everything like that, which makes it more appealing. Like I was not really in love with the idea of like living in Vegas for a year and doing it in that context. But if I can do it from the comfort of my own home, that's a lot more desirable for me. And yeah, I, I think that the most, the most interesting part of the process for me that I haven't gotten to yet and would love to do over the next couple of years in the context you did it or potentially in the DFS context would be, it's just a very different way of thinking about the same game. You know, like I don't, if I don't necessarily go, okay, the, the wizards are playing the bucks. Okay. I think the bucks are going to win this game. And I think, is it going to be close enough? Is there a matchup that I need to watch it? Cause that's the context for my job is, you know, we do I have to do this. Do I have time for it? Is there something better on now? How long would it take to go? Oh, well, you know, they play this way at home. And, and so they, they often have these blowout wins or something like that. I don't think it would take very long, but I would want to get really comfortable with that before doing it. Partially that's because I'm conservative with money, but I do think that it would be really fun to get there. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm tempted. I'm tempted, but it's probably best to keep this a hobby. I don't even know if I'm allowed to do it. I, I've said on various podcasts that I reached out to the NBA to ask 
am I allowed to actually gamble on NBA games? Uh, I just want to know this. Oh, I don't- I'm, I'm pretty confident the answer is yes, because I haven't ever seen anything that said no. And well, well, I have never done it, but I know I never got a response. And to me, maybe that's just they didn't want to tell me that I actually could. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I think that there's so to me there's a line, and this is this is more getting into lawyer brain. There's a line between people who know a lot and people who can affect the outcome. And so mm-hmm. for me, like the the ultimate example, of this would be you know like a player or a manager betting against their own team. You know, in that sort of a circumstance, because it's a lot easier to sabotage something than like, you can't be like, oh, I bet on my team and then I'm going to hit six home runs or I'm going to score 50 points. Like, that's a lot harder to do than say, oh, I'm just going to be bad and then I'm going to hurt this or I'm going to, if I'm manager, play the wrong players or something like that. So that circumstance, obviously, to me, that should be banned. That should be, there should be really stiff consequences. And that theoretically is what the integrity feed that the NBA wants to get and probably won't get, it would be about. And referees are another example of this because they can affect the outcome. And and especially if we're talking about an over-under or a line, they can absolutely do that. I mean, that is while whether they do or not is a question that I'm not comfortable to answer, but whether they theoretically could is, is, an, is an answer yeah. I can give, and that's yes. And yeah. so that's, to me, where the line is. Now, if you know a lot, that's something very different. Like, for example, there are on, like, various – outlets, not in the United States, from what I understand, like you can bet on things like politics. I don't think there is a, a, like necessarily something that says like, oh, well, you if you're involved in politics, you like if you're a political reporter, you can't throw money on this if you happen to have an instinct or something like that. And it would probably be too hard to draw the line because I can't figure out where you would do it between that and somebody who had pertinent information. Like, let's say for whatever reason, you happen to know a couple minutes ahead of time that player X was hurt and was going to miss the whole rest of the year. Like, let's say it happened in a in a workout. It didn't happen in a game where everybody saw it happen. Mm. Now, that sort of circumstance gets dicey to me morally, but I don't think it gets dicey legally. So I was thinking about this because now you can actually gamble in summer league games. And I, I remember this last summer league that Jordan Bell was just clearly the best summer league player the Warriors had, and they looked awful when he wasn't playing. And I think I probably could have easily found out when they would bench Jordan uh, versus when they wouldn't. Uh, would that be ethically dubious if I were to just make big bets based on Jordan Bell at summer league, which sounds like the most degenerate thing in the world? But I, th- I think that sounds yeah. like the way to su- to subsidize your Vegas trip next year. That's what it, that's what it sounds like to me. I mean, the the fun thing about ethic ethically or morally dubious is that it's really about what you're comfortable with. I oh, mean, there's got there's as, as, so some, as somebody who made a living buying and selling tickets, or as most people would refer to it, scalping tickets, I understand how this can be, how gray areas can be exploited. Oh, there's got to be so much summer league arbitrage. When you think of how oh, many man. Laker fans, how many Laker fans pour in and they just want to go to Thomas and Mac. Well, actually, yeah, they want to go to Thomas and Mac because they wouldn't play in the Cox Pavilion and they just want to put some money down on their team, on their summer league team and, and watch it. And if you knew enough about the players and all these crazy mishmash rosters that the Lakers were going against, the Summer League Lakers, I think that would be a potential uh, potential avenue right there. See, now I think you're starting to turn me on the idea of maybe I don't have to become an expert in the NBA itself like for, for, gam- for gambling purposes. Maybe it's just get into Summer League and, and do that really well for like two weeks. 
Well, I feel that that you and Nate would be great at that. You know a lot of these uh, a lot of these peripheral players, marginal well, players. Well, and you know. there would be an opportunity in the let's say like two weeks between. Uh, granted, we're doing a lot of off season prep work at that point to just kind of have some of these preliminary conversations. You know, talk to scouts or talk to our friends who do draft work and everything like that but like okay who are these european of these european guys that are coming over for summer league which of these guys can actually play like that yeah. sort of thing because because we also have access to information that is is harder to get so that's really interesting so yeah Ah, oh, you're getting me. You're getting me more interested in this. There's one other kind of thing along these lines that I wanted to talk with you about, and that is, I don't know if you came across this during your travels in, in these for this thing, but the most frustrating team for me to watch this year so far has been the Washington Wizards, and the reason <laughs> why is because John Wall. I've said for for this whole season that he is the bellwether for that team, and he is the least consistent in terms of effort bellwether I can recall for a team, and it's. So hard because yeah, I mean they 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 lost tonight in with, to the Bulls at home without him. But I've I feel like he would probably be a really good example of arbitrage. Like it's you know like which matchups he gets up for like national TV or an opponent. That are, are, are you are Danny? Are you just trying to find a way around saying which which nightclubs really? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I mean honestly, that would probably be easier information to get. I mean that that <laughs> you know like that, but that sort of thing. But like I've been and, and you know like it's funny like everyone's when I'm critical of the Wizards, somebody says, oh, you don't watch this team. It's like, A, I used to cover them. And B, they're, you know, like, I watch a lot of them, and that's where you start to get the sense of it's like, you you could watch it, and they could they could play that great game they did against the Rockets, or they could just get blown out by 20 against the Hawks. And... I, they're so frustrating just because they can't get an they can't get a defensive rebound. That's the most frustrating thing in the world when that you actually play decent defense on the possession and you, you give it right up. And God, I'm still laughing at myself for no, you know what? I'm okay. I, I, I picked them tonight. They didn't have wall. I have my reasons. I have to be emotionally healthy and okay with that. But yes, they they and the Jazz have been the most frustrating teams. Although maybe you could say if you were shorting the Wizards all season, you'd be happy because they have the worst record against the spread of any team, even ahead of the Warriors. Oh, that, that makes some sense. So the question that I've been asking, kind of a standard thing now at the end of these podcasts, and this will be different for you now that Strauss vs. the House is getting into a hiatus, is whether we're talking Warriors or whoever else, depending on, I don't know what you're planning on doing the rest of this, what are you looking forward to watching and learning over the next couple weeks to a month? I think my focus has, has been, not that it wasn't trained on the Warriors, but there is an element of uh, what is going on, <laughs> what's happening, um, and maybe we can say that it's December, but I, I think that there's a little more intrigue surrounding the Warriors, so that's that's a boring answer perhaps, that there's going to be some focus on the Warriors, but I think with, with uh, less focus on the picks, I'm just going to try to focus more on the Western Conference and less so on some of these uh, middling um, Eastern Conference teams, even though some of them are fun. I enjoy the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, they are they are a fun league pass watch. And if I'm watching not as many of their games, part of me will be sad about that. Uh, but I think it's it's getting to t- the time where I'm just I want to figure out who are like the second and third best teams in the Western Conference. I, I, I would say second is is the Thunder, but maybe who are the third? Like, what is this hierarchy? Um, I know Nate had the the interesting, compelling take that the Lakers are that team. 
Um, I want to figure the Lakers out. I don't have a good sense of them. I don't really have a good idea of their pulse. They're big at every position. I guess that's what they do, but they don't seem to, um, excel at many things. Their, their identity is we have LeBron and that's quite an identity, I suppose, but I just want to get a better sense of what the Lakers are and, and, and how they play. So that's another thing. I mean, that's boring. Yeah. Warriors and Lakers, but those two teams I'm going to be focusing even more on. Those are completely worthy pursuits and ones that I will have as well. For the Western Conference, I think I'm going to start, I usually pivot in February, but I think I'm going to start a little earlier in January of thinking about things from a playoff context. I think partially because my instinct is the trade deadline isn't going to be super climactic this year. I could be wrong, but my instinct is that the biggest name that changed teams already happened in Jimmy Butler, and this would be far from the first first season where that happened long before the deadline. But so watching, not only watching the Thunder, the Nuggets, the Lakers, the Rockets, all those type of teams and saying, who is the second best team, but how do they stack up against each other and stack up against the Warriors and whoever else we're considering elite teams in a theoretical seven game series. And so that's also thinking about teams like the Clippers and the Grizzlies and the Wolves and all that kind of stuff in the West. I'm going to have a lot of fun figuring that out. And also, it's going to be helped by Denver getting some guys back. You know, I I don't feel part of the reason I don't want to do the playoff focus super early is all of a sudden somebody gets hurt in late February and you're like, oh, they're Mm. not going to be that same team. But there are certain pieces because these franchises all are different in certain ways than they were before. Like, I think I want to get a fuller sense of where I'm working from. So, like, Denver, okay, what about their defense is working? What about their defense is not necessarily going to to persist and everything like that. You know, Houston's looked a lot better over the last couple of weeks. Is that real? Is that more of a regular season thing or or is there something that we can really take into uh, either a first or second round series or a series against the Warriors whenever that would take place? And then the other one for me is are any of these teams below five in the East for real? And for Mm. real doesn't necessarily have to mean like they can win a playoff series because I don't feel confident about that about any of these teams. But are they, you know, are either for the present or the future, what do they have going on? So you brought up Brooklyn. Brooklyn is a team that I really enjoy watching. They, before losing a couple of games recently, had, I think they won like, I think actually they've won nine out of 10 before their loss to the Hornets. They've, They've been playing well, fun team to watch. They do, they're analytical darlings because of a lot of the things they do on the court and you know charlotte we don't know what's going on with kemba and everything like that and then detroit just a bizarre team but one that i every once in a while i enjoy because some for some reason they have really interesting games against teams sometimes they just have these games that i'm just trying to figure out some of that's blake drummond you know having great games then having awful games like he had some really bad pick and roll stuff in the game against indiana tonight and so I think that I know at this point who the bad teams are, and that doesn't mean I, I still watch them. You know, I watch I watch every team a lot, but I, I enjoy the discovery, and we haven't even talked about the top of the East, and I'm still figuring those teams out too, but the top of the East, I think I'm going to have more time to figure out, and so it's kind of that five, six, seven, eight, nine, like where are those teams going, and also it's not necessarily about who's going to make the playoffs. I'm sure that's what a lot of people care about. It's what if these teams have something that a year or two from now is going to be better, you know, like is Jared Allen real is when he gets two years older is he going to be a substantially better player Josh Richardson same type of story all those types of things and that's really I think what for me January and February is about beyond kind of figuring out the contours of the playoff picture is who do I want to keep in the back of my mind before we get to the garbage that is the end of the season and saying okay this is this is something I need to keep in the back of my mind and say they might have something here. This is actually what I did with Dallas mm. last year, where I thought, I just had this thought that Dallas was way 
way better than their record last year. And so I was a little bit rosier on what they could be this year. And we'll see if that works out. I mean, they've had, they've had this crazy home road split and everything like that. And- Which, oh, that's another topic to get into. Um, and we probably only have a few minutes left, but that, again, this has been what the fun of the column was where it, it brings these topics into my, into my view, which is, how real is a team being good at home versus being bad away? You know, is that something our teams really, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that a certain team in terms of playing style is just better at home. That the only home court advantage is probably the advantage of altitude. Because I remember last season, the Celtics were really good on the road during the season and then during the playoffs, um, were really bad on the road and people were saying, oh, they're terrible on the road in the postseason and like it was just a feature of their team and I just looked at it and I, I thought to myself, no, this is just regression to the mean from what they were and so, yeah, what does it mean that Dallas has been so bad on the road? Is that just, is that just arbitrary is another question. Yeah, and that, that's something I would love for somebody who has more time and wherewithal to do is also, like, I've had this idea that defense generally travels well, and I have no idea if that, I, I know anecdotally it's true for when I watch, but I don't have the, like, oh, the five best defensive teams, they have they have outperformed their expected road record, or whatever, or they underperform, yeah. or whatever else it's going to be. And yeah, that's that's a lot of fun, and I, and I think that the the other kind of part of this is it's just trying to figure out like why what one of the things that I love about basketball and it's true in other fields that I've I've studied and spent time in is trying to figure out why things are the way they are and part of how, how I've enjoyed you know like when we talk about you, you the picks you make and kind of the rationales behind it is it's trying to get at that idea of you know like basketball it's an 82 game season and there are all these like weird outcomes and and a lot of times it just gets written up as oh it's just you know it, it guys made shots guys miss shots or something else like that and i've always wanted to get into the idea of like can we predict these and you know baxter does that with the schedule word type stuff and but that's i feel like there's a lot more substance that could be there it's just there needs to be somebody who's super duper into it yeah and uh the, the last topic uh the most random topic that there is um because you brought up the nets and watching the nets is is joe harris actually good <laughs> is he actually good? Uh, I th- I think that Joe Harris is he is can be a part of successful teams because even though he doesn't have to be a big part of it, he teams have to respect his shot. I think he's more capable defensively than I gave him credit for, especially early in his career. I thought you know when when I watched him in college and when I watched him on the Cavs, I thought he sucked, but he's a little bit better there and. There is an intense value to having players. And granted, he's not. I don't think he's going to necessarily shoot as well as he has. They're like he was. I think he's like third in three point percentage at one like one point like a week ago. I don't know if he's still yeah, there. He's 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 somewhere a little bit south of forty eight percent from from. Yeah, yeah him, it, him and Davis Bertans are like this ridiculous, re- these ridiculous outliers so far this year. I just, I just wonder if if he could have been better groomed uh, and could have been a factor on some of those LeBron teams if he hadn't been uh, answer, given up on. The answer is probably yes. I mean, I think I think there probably was something there, and that's a really interesting idea. The parallel between the LeBron Cavs. We can't talk about this now because we're going to stop. But the yeah. LeBron Cavs and the Warriors teams of not having the the not the incentive, but having having the pieces in place to really maximize these young players. And maybe that's something that San Antonio deserves more credit for because both teams that were competing for championships just, just didn't give the opportunity. And yes, playing time is not, you know, coaching development is far more important than playing time in terms of getting these players out there. But neither one of those teams really cultivated much young talent that wasn't already there. Yeah. Um, although, man, did the Warriors try with McAdoo. 
just didn't didn't totally work out. Oh man, <laughs> they, they 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 tried. I mean, that's that's for sure. But I'll, I'll thank you so much for taking time. It's a pleasure as always. Uh, I love doing this. You do a great job, Danny, and uh, I will see you soon enough in the. In, in the bowels of Oracle. Thanks again to Ethan Sherwood Strauss for taking the time to come on. You can read him at The Athletic. Does a lot of great work for them. And while his primary focus is on the Warriors, he, he's done some really good work that I, I think exists outside of that, beyond an interesting piece on the A's to his following of an advanced scout, which I thought was fascinating, you know, a world that I know a little bit about, but not a lot more, a lot more now after reading Ethan's piece. And of course, you can follow him on Twitter at Sherwood Strauss, S-H-E-R-W-O-O-D-S-T-R-A-U-S-S. Love having Ethan on, as I've said before, one of the earliest guests on Real Jam Radio for a reason. I enjoy talking about basketball with him quite a bit and being a an informal consultant on Strauss versus the House has been fun. As we talked about in the pod, it's just not something I've ever thought about that much, even though it's so connected with what I do. And so I've enjoyed the experience. We'll see where it goes from here, whenever it goes from here. And this is a pretty fun time in terms of the NBA and everything that's going on and trying to get a feel for where all these teams are. So I'm going to keep an eye on that. And that's part of the fun of Real Jam Radio is talking about it with smart people who are watching the league as well and keep that going in future weeks. As I talked about last time, I'm fiddling around with doing less editing of the show. It is something that I, I don't know, I've always kind of liked, but it doesn't seem like people necessarily need that, especially with the feel that goes on right now. Now this is a little bit closer to dunked on. And while if time were no were not important, I would still do it. It does open up some, some real hours for me, just in terms of the way the show goes. And maybe it'll be discretionary, but feedback as it was before, welcome Daniel Rue NBA at gmail.com. Good, bad, or indifferent with this, with that idea of editing or anything else with the show. Really do appreciate it. If you want to support the show, lots of great ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. Those are so important for a show that comes out at random moments. I mean, this one's going to come out on a Friday night slash Saturday morning. That is not the easiest time to just remember it or just think, oh, one of Real Jam Radio's there. So if you subscribe, just pops into your podcast player, whatever that is. can also spread the word. Social media, in person, whatever makes you happy. And subscribe, I'm sorry, I already talked about that. Leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. And if you don't use that, you can be super awesome and give it a rating and review in both. The whole idea there is that's how some people find podcasts is by seeing what's reviewed well. It helps with rankings and everything like that. So if you want to take the time to do that, I really do appreciate it. And the most important thing with this show and any other podcast is to check out our sponsors for this episode. That is betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% signup bonus and true car. Great place to buy new and used cars. And as you heard in the ad, great place to sell your car. So you can check that out as well. We'll be back next week. At some point, I am going to be out of town for New Year's. So it'll probably be later in the week. And once the episode is recorded, I will tell you who the guest is and we can fiddle with it from there. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. 